You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Whether we like it or not, we've all had to make some serious adjustments in recent weeks. Most of us are probably on the not-like-it side of things. Those adjustments have been related to some new terminology that has infiltrated and made its way through our culture. We've learned how important it is to flatten the curve, haven't we? To slow the spread of the COVID-19 coronavirus as it moves through our society and around the world. And if we are successful at that, it will be because we've been practicing another term that we've had to learn in recent weeks. You probably already guessed it. Social distancing. By isolating ourselves from one another, we may be able to successfully slow the spread of the virus so that it doesn't overwhelm us so that it doesn't exhaust our capacities to care for one another. But that means changes, doesn't it? It means classes have been canceled. Social distancing. Sports seasons and tournaments have been canceled. Social distancing. Everyday things like eating at restaurants, canceled. Why? Social distancing. Worshiping together. Sitting alongside one another. Standing, singing in, our, in the presence of one another. Suspended. Not canceled. Suspended. Why? Social distancing. And in that, we've discovered the struggle associated with adjusting, haven't we? New questions arise for so many people. For some, the question is, who will watch my kids who are not allowed to go to school while I go to work? For others, how will I pay my bills since I'm now unemployed because the restaurant I worked with is shut down? For others, how will I graduate from college with my senior year on hold? For others, how will I protect the vulnerable people in my family and in my community? And what about the challenges of isolation, especially for those who may live alone? How do we care for them? How do we maintain relationships? How do we maintain our spiritual growth? How do we combat loneliness? Isolation. How do we care? for one another. Questions like these have been swirling in my mind for several weeks now as I try to navigate what it looks like to pastor a local church in the midst of a global crisis. And those questions were present and swirling as I sat down this week to reflect on this text and to write this sermon. And as those questions interacted with the Word of God, I found myself recognizing something 
in the Scriptures that maybe wasn't as prominent before because after all, our circumstances so often shape the way we read the Bible. You know what was there? Again and again? Distance. Geographical distance. Relational distance. Social distance. And in each instance where that distance was present, in each instance, Jesus demonstrated His power. Jesus demonstrated His power. And it begins to come clear as John is writing the narrative. It begins to come clear that social distance can't stop divine power. That's the bottom line. Social distance can't stop the divine power that is present in Jesus. So we pick up the story towards the end of chapter 4. It wasn't the only time someone came to Jesus asking Him to heal one of their children. He's back in Cana. He'd been traveling around a bit. He'd been uh, through the countryside, John tells us earlier. He'd been to Samaria. He'd engaged the woman at the well, which is such a familiar part of the Gospel of John. But now he's back in Cana. And that's significant because it's the first place where he performed the first sign, changing water into wine in great abundance. Revealing His glory. Revealing His new creation power. Revealing His ability to provide abundantly where there is scarcity. And there's a royal official who's got a sick child. A sick child who the text tells us not once but twice is, almost, is about to die. And so this guy comes to Jesus and you can imagine the agony. If you've ever had a, a sick child, if one of your children was unwell and seriously unwell... You can imagine how this guy felt. I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a conference in Tennessee and I woke up uh, to a message from my wife Naomi that she had, she'd had to take our youngest son Jackson to the emergency room in the middle of the night and that he had been admitted to Children's Hospital in Mobile where we lived for respiratory related issues. You can imagine what I felt like being so far away. There's a distance. You want to help. You want to be there. You want to hold your family and you want to care for them and you want to make them well and you want to snap your fingers and, and just make it all right. And it's bad enough that you're helpless when you're present. It's even worse when you're helpless at a distance and there's nothing you can do and you can't get there fast enough and you hope the police officers aren't out with their radar guns as you're trying to get home to your family. You can imagine if you've ever been in a situation like that, how this guy felt. He's an official. He's got power. He's got connections. He's got status. But he is helpless when it comes to his child. And so he goes in desperation to Jesus. Because in Jesus is life. That's what we were told back in chapter 1, verse 4. 
This Jesus who stands before you is the Word of God that created all things made flesh. In Him was life. And nothing exists that hasn't come into existence through Him. In Him was life. The Creator, with all of His divine power and all of His perfect love, is present in Jesus. In Him was life. And so this agonized Father goes to Jesus and throws Himself on the mercy of the Lord. Won't you come and heal my son? And this is the place where the distance becomes prominent. He's gone to Jesus, and apparently the distance is significant because later on, when his servants finally reconnect with him, it's the next day before they see each other. So it wasn't just, hey, let's go around the block and make sure that uh, you, you come heal my son and, and, and make sure everything's okay. There was a distance to be crossed. They couldn't get there right away. There was urgency. They were hours away. And this guy says, come, Jesus, come and heal him. My son is at the point of death. Come down with me. And Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. The official, I don't know if he feels like Jesus is trying to change the subject or something, but he brings it back to point. Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Close the gap. Decrease the distance. Come closer. Touch him. And in that moment, Jesus speaks. The, wor- the voice, the Word that brought the world into existence, who created everything out of nothing in that moment, spoke and oriented all of that creative power towards that one little boy. And we discover in that moment that the distance is no hindrance to Jesus' power. The distance can't stop the power of the Word made flesh. And Jesus says in verse 50, Go, your son will live. And if you have any question that John wants us to see that this is about the one who gives life and the one in whom is life, in him is life. And John wants to amplify that before us because, and he does it just through the vocabulary of the of the passage. Twice we're told that the boy is at the point of death. He, he might as well be dead already because by the time you get back, probably be over, probably be too late, but still there's this desperation and we're told twice he's at the point of death. Jesus says something about signs and wonders and the guy says, back on point, come on before he dies. And then we're told three times, we are reminded three times that he will live. Jesus says, go, your son will live. The servants, the slaves meet the royal official and tell him while he's on his way back, your son was alive. They start pulling out their calendars and watches to try to figure out 
When did that go down specifically? And then the father realizes, it says in verse 53, when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. That was the very hour the child was made well. You get the word death twice, you get the word life three times because John wants us to see that in Jesus, in the one who is the word made flesh, in the creative, powerful word of God, life always overcomes death. And he doesn't even have to be in the same room. He doesn't have to be present physically to touch the child. He speaks from a distance. And the one who is life gives life. Social distance can't stop Jesus' divine power. Reflecting this week on how absolutely felt helpless the boy's father must have felt. And how John wants to see, wants us to see, how absolutely helpless we are. And it's become even clearer to us in the last couple of weeks, hasn't it? How absolutely vulnerable and helpless we all are. Because there's this microscopic virus that no one can see with the naked eye. Traveling around the world, killing people. And we are scrambling. Because we're vulnerable. Because we're helpless. John wants all of us to wrestle with this deep reality that we are helpless. You hear <laughs> the old uh, folk religion, the Lord helps those who help themselves. Find that one in the Bible. If you do, drop a comment on the uh, live stream comment box and I'll, I'll be sure to take a look at it later. Good luck because it's not there. You never get this thing in the, in the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. You know, you try a little bit harder. You do a little bit better. You help yourself and maybe Jesus, if you do well enough, He'll kick in and give you a hand. The Lord helps those who help themselves. That's nonsense. Page after page after page all throughout the Scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament. The triune God helps those who are helpless. The triune God helps those who cannot help themselves. The triune God has a special place in His heart for the vulnerable, for orphans, for widows, for the sick, for people who are used to helping themselves, but very quickly discover they got nothing. They have no resources that can solve their problems. The Lord helps those who are helpless. So I wonder if this season doesn't provide an opportunity for us to see the sufficiency of Jesus in new ways. 
as we are reminded of our finitude, of our mortality, of our helplessness, of our vulnerability, of our inability to cope with crisis. I wonder if the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't really wonder, this, he wants to show his sufficiency in new ways. Not saying the Lord brought a crisis just so he could get some kicks and show his sufficiency. I'm saying, here we are, this is where we live, actions have consequences, and there's this thing happening that none of us have real control over, and in this, the question is, are we looking to Jesus? In our place of isolation. Are we looking to the divine word in the midst of our social distancing? Are we trusting Jesus? With our vulnerability. Some seem to think trusting Jesus means brazen disregard for wisdom. And suggest that, well, if we trust the Lord, we'll not have to worry about precautions just going about our business and we need to be wise enough to pay attention to the difference between trusting Jesus and brazen folly the Lord wants to show his sufficiency in this season of adjustment, difficulty, challenge, grief. The question is, do we have eyes to see? Eyes to see our own helplessness and eyes to see Jesus' divine power. The story continues, Jesus heads to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he goes to a place where people who are unwell gather. They gather there because there's this pool, and it appears that from time to time the water gets stirred up, or it bubbles, or there's some sort of movement, and when that happens, whoever gets there first gets healed. That's the that's the assumption. Jesus goes to this place. We are told that there are people everywhere on these various porticos, porches around the pool. Many invalids, we are told, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And you need to know that in Jewish thought, paralysis was very closely associated with death. When you begin to lose your ability to move your limbs, it's very closely associated with the end of your life. So Jesus goes, and there are many people around. And with people everywhere, Jesus singles out this one guy. We're told that the man had been there 38 years. Presumably, all or most of his life. So he's pushing 40 or somewhere around there. He's been at this place all this time. 
He'd been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, we're told he knew he'd been there a long time. And he says to him, do you want to be well? It strikes me that even with all these people everywhere, this guy has no one. Distance shows its face again, doesn't it? Now, he doesn't sound to be like he's six feet away from people, but he is relationally distant from everybody there. And it's helpful to remember, friends, that we can be distant even when we're close to one another. This guy says, yeah, I don't have anybody to help me. There's people everywhere. <laughs> Jesus says, do you want to be well? And his response is, I don't have anyone to help me. And the water stirs, and somebody gets there before me, and they're well, and I, I just, I, I can't, I don't, I, I don't have anyone. Sometimes, the place of our need becomes the place of our comfort such that we come up with excuses to stay in the place of our need so that we don't have to tend to all the things we'd have to tend to if we could get up and walk. Notice he doesn't answer Jesus' question. Do you want to be well? He doesn't say, yeah, of course I want to be well. He just points to the place of his need and the missing relationships. And I wonder sometimes how many of us have places in our lives where we know, like, this needs help. I need Jesus to touch my life in this place, this relationship, maybe something with my children. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something else. But there's this place and it's just been there and it's been there for a long time and it's come to feel like it will always be there. And when Jesus shows up to say, do you want to be well? We simply respond, eh. I've gotten used to it. It's been 38 years after all. Might as well just stay here. No one can really help me. Not even sure you can, Jesus. After all, been here a long time. Those are the places the Lord Jesus Christ wants to show his power. Those are the places where he wants to close the gap, where he wants to take that relational distance and bring his presence. So he says to the man, get up, take your mat, and walk. And again, John wants us to see in him is life. 
the God who gives life is present in Jesus because Jesus doesn't need a pool of water to make this guy whole. Jesus doesn't need a formula or an incantation to make this man whole. Jesus made those legs. Jesus made those arms. Jesus made that body. And now he can make it new. He can bring wholeness. He can bring healing. And the man gets up to walk. Again, Jesus meets human helplessness with his divine sufficiency. Because that distance, the relational distance between that man and the many people around him couldn't stop his divine, Jesus' divine power. For the first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus' signs and wonders begin to provoke some opposition. To this point, Jesus has performed the wonders, and the narrative has moved on. This time, he's tread on sacred ground. Because it turns out, the day that he healed that fellow was the Sabbath, and as you probably know, you don't work on the Sabbath. Now, the opposition doesn't set their sights on Jesus initially, they set their sights on the man who's been healed initially. Verse 9, verse 10, that day was a Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to carry your mat. And this guy says, well, the guy who healed me told me to pick it up. (laughs) Seems like he's got some authority, so I, I did what he said. And notice they skip the part who about him being healed, right? Nobody says, wait, hang on a second, the guy who healed you? Right, because you've been there 38 years. Their eyes are not open to the wonders, to the sign, to the miracle, to the spectacular display of Jesus' life-giving power. Instead, they focus in on the way he's violated their expectations. Forget being healed. Who's the guy who told you to pick up your mat and walk? I don't know. He disappeared. Later on, Jesus finds him. He tells him, don't sin so that nothing worse happens to you. And he's not, this is not a, like, if you sin, you'll get sick kind of thing. Jesus is creating some eternal perspective here and saying, look, you were pretty much dead anyway. He's a paralyzed guy for 38 years. There are some far greater matters that need to be tended to. Your life needs to be surrendered to God for the work that He wants to do. And if you fall into rebellion, there are consequences for that. Eternal consequences. The story proceeds. The opposition finds Jesus and they confront him. And Jesus offers what is probably the equivalent of a first century mic drop. 
They're worried about him working on the Sabbath. He says, I'll take your working on the Sabbath and raise it one. My father is always working. And I also am working. Verse 18, for this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he wasn't simply breaking the Sabbath. That's bad enough. And if you read Exodus, breaking the Sabbath can bring a capital sentence, a capital, capital punishment. He wasn't only breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, the text says, thereby making himself equal to God. So he's just kind of taking that Sabbath thing and taking and, and, and raised the ante to take divine honors for himself. And they hear that, they see that. Now what's striking about this is, a lot of times we read these miracle stories and we say, look, Jesus can do miracles. Obviously, he's God. And we forget that there are all kinds of normal people who are not God in Old Testament and the New Testament who do miracles. And nobody says, well, Elijah did a miracle. Obviously, he's God in the flesh. Or Paul did a miracle there in Acts. Obviously, he's God in Peter. You know, silver and gold, I don't have any of that to give you, but take a beer and walk. And nobody thinks Peter is God in the flesh. The miracles are not the primary revelation of the divinity of Jesus. He reveals that He is God in the flesh. My Father is working and I am too. The miracles confirm that He's telling the truth. Because the Creator, the One who gives life, is present in Jesus to give new life. The miracles function to confirm the validity and the credibility of what everyone sees and hears in Jesus, that the Creator is present uniquely in Jesus' body. The Word has become flesh. And we are seeing His glory, His creative power, all of these things. It's striking to me how different people respond differently to Jesus as different crises emerge in the text. My son is dying. I'll throw myself on your mercy. I don't have anyone to help me. And Jesus steps in and changes everything. And then you get this contrast, don't you? You get people who see all the same things. All the data is there. You can investigate it. You can listen to the stories. You can do due diligence. And yet, when they see Jesus, they are filled with murderous thoughts and opposition. In this time of crisis, I can't help but wonder, how are we going to respond to Jesus and His invitation to trust Him? Will we see that in Jesus, the one who made us, the one who loves us, has come to our place of brokenness and our place of mortality and our place of vulnerability, our place of helplessness, and has allowed himself to be present, to bring glory, to bring healing, to bring new creation, to allow his arms to be spread wide on his cross. To allow his hands to be pierced and his 
body to be broken, to walk with us in the place of our frailty and death so that he can bring new life. I wonder in this crisis if we will allow our eyes to be steadfastly on Jesus. In the midst of all the distance, all the anxiety that comes with that, all of the isolation, can we keep our eyes on Jesus? Confident that social distance does not stop His divine power. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.